welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. If you'd like to turn there, we're continuing on with our series, I Know Jesus. I've got a couple questions to start us off with as, as we get into our messages. What is human essence? Like, what makes us who we are? A couple weeks ago, we learned about God breathing into us and, and where our life came. It came from God's breath, but, but more on the individual level. What makes us who we are individually? What makes us uniquely human and what defines us? I think that we sometimes, maybe we don't define it, but I think we express our human essence in the word heart. Like that, that's how we define who we are to the world or, or what our innermost self is. When, when somebody plays sports and they play really hard, we say they played with all of their heart. Well, when you fall in love with someone, you say, oh, I gave them, I gave them my heart, right? When, when, you, when you break up with someone, you say they leave me and they broke my heart. When, when somebody speaks, we talk about them speaking from the heart. And what that means is, is that we pour what's within us outside of us. That's our motivation, the word heart is. And when we talk about our heart, our heart will dictate our actions. Is that not correct? Whatever is in here will obviously flow out of us at some time. We talked about sports earlier. We talk about somebody with a lot of heart. They play hard. When we talk about serving God, when we say we are full of a love for God and we want to serve Him, our heart is to serve Him. You will see us out spreading the gospel and finding ways to serve Him. When I fell in love with Jessica, I used to joke, my truck is broke. The thing heads to Cersei every time I turn it on. Our actions dictate what is in our heart. And so what we're going to look at today is action and heart. But, but we're not going to talk about our actions and our heart. In this, in this series, Jesus has, I'm sorry, John has been defining who Jesus is. And we've talked about John is not really concerned with what Jesus did. He doesn't spend a lot of time in the beginning of this and goes, oh, you'll never believe the events. He's been trying to tell us who Jesus is, what his essence is made up of. And I think we could call that what is Jesus' heart that John is trying to reveal to us. And what we'll see is that Jesus' heart will be just like ours. It will dictate his action and it will change his effort and it just pours out of him. It's what defines him. And it makes sense that we could talk about the heart of God just like we talk about our heart, right? Because we were made in the image of God. If we can define our inner essence by heart, we could probably define God's inner essence and His desires by, by what is His heart, considering that He breathed life into us. So I think if we could understand our hearts a little bit with a part of us that God poured into us, I think we could understand God's heart a little bit as well. There's a very telling verse that has always really convicted me in Matthew 6.21. Don't turn there. I'm going to read it to you. It's just a short verse. It tells us about your human heart. It says, where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And when we hear treasure, we think of like money, right? And we talk about where do you put your money? And we've, we've used that to talk about how do you use your money to serve God? Or are you withholding from God to serve yourself with your money? And that expresses your heart. But your 
treasure can be so much more than just what money that you have in your bank account. Your, your treasure can be things like success. I have a friend of mine, and I won't tell you all the details. I met with him a while back, and he's got his own business. I was asking him, How, how's business going? He said, oh, we had a pretty good month last year. And I won't tell you the details, but what he told me is he said, uh, I made X amount of money, and that X amount of money was more than he made in a month than I make with all of my incomes combined in a year. I was like, man, what are you going to do with all that money? He said, he started telling me a story. He's like, well, if I get to a certain amount per month, and that will put me at a certain amount per year, he said, within my industry, in my, in my bubble, that will put me in the top two to three percent in my business in the, in the entire United States. He said, that's my goal. And I was like, wow, that's pretty awesome. You want to be in the top two to three percent? He said, yeah. He said, my wife was even asking me about that. He said, she asked, she said, you don't even care that, that I'll go ahead and tell y'all, his goal is $83,000 a month. He said, you don't even care that that's $83,000 going into a bank account that we own. He said, no, I just, I want my name on that plaque that said that I'm in the top two to three percent. His treasure wasn't even money. It was success. We can put our treasure in innocent things. Like some of us, we, we treasure our family and what means more to us than anything else in the world is our children or our parents or our sibling. And, and our heart will follow whatever our treasure is. Whatever you define as your treasure, that's what your heart is always going to be seeking. Whether it's money or success or family or a thousand other things that we could talk about. When I think of treasure, I always think of pirates. Don't know why. Pirates stole things like crops. They never stole chests of gold. But in our society, we think of pirates, and they're always looking for that chest of gold. And because they're unorganized, it's like got gold coins and rubies and pearls, and just all kind of mixed in there. And in the movies and in the books, what do we know about pirates? They find treasure, and they're so scared somebody's going to take it away from them. What do they do? They go bury it. And they spend the rest of their life worrying about what? Who's going to take my treasure away? A treasure they don't even have. Where their treasure is, there their heart is also. And that is so true of us is what the Bible tells us. So if we sit here and say we have the ability to look at the human heart and define the human heart by our treasure, or uh, define where our heart is by where our treasure is, do we not just have a reproduction of God's heart? Is that not true of God? That where his treasure is, his heart will also be. And so to understand God's heart, we've got to ask, what, what is God's treasure? And to define what his treasure is, we've got to ask ourselves, what is God's heart? So as we look at this, John is going to begin to open up to us, telling us about Jesus. And I think he's going to define God's heart by defining his treasure. Today, we're going to see three actions with three truths and then three purposes for those actions as what John explains as Jesus' heart. By the way, in your bulletin, if you haven't been here, there's a little piece of paper with an outline. You don't have to use it. It's not a homework assignment. But if you have trouble remembering what we learned and you want to take a step to help you concentrate on the main points of the sermon, just take a moment and try just for one Sunday to write those things down. We put them up here on the board or on the on the screens uh, for you to do that. And even if you don't want to, even if you don't want to uh, do that, please just take notice of these because these are going to tell you a lot about God when you put them all together. So in John chapter one, let's look at what John defines as Jesus's heart, starting with verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Stop there, but leave your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. Action number one in your notes today. Action number one, he became. That's another translation that we use for he was made because we know that Christ was not made. I think what that was made meant to say was he was made into. He became something. 
We know that there was this moment in history where this, this logos that we've been talking about, this power that shaped the world, went from being some abstract power in the world and became a human being. The Greek word there means to be transformed or to be converted. So when we look at the action of Jesus Christ, he became something that he was not. That power became flesh. And as John is writing this, as he's writing, oh, he, the flesh was made, I'm sorry, uh, the word was made into the flesh. The, the word became flesh. He would have shocked everybody. Because for pagans who worshipped a multitude of gods, gods were always somewhat less than the Logos. Those gods were always some kind of a being, but there was always something greater than them, some, some great power across the universe that held the universe together. And so pagans would have had their attention caught. Oh, oh wait, this, this being, this, this power in the world is going to become a, a being, much less a human being? The Jewish people who read this would have had the opposite reaction. To, to them, God was so far above the flesh as a spirit, they would have said, wait, wait, you're saying that God himself is going to become a human being? And, and so what John is throwing out here is that that power, whatever you call it, if you call it the Logos, if you call it God, the power that holds the world came together becomes flesh. Our first truth, and right under our action, number one, is as God appeared on earth in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. Uh, that's a hard statement. Like, how did he do this? Like, how do you define how he did this? How, how did Jesus become flesh? We call this the incarnation. And the incarnation basically explains to us what we can already not understand. He just did. He's God. He has the ability to do those things. But this is defined for us in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Let me tell you the, the background to the story here. There's a young lady introduced in the story named Mary, only 14 or 15 years old. And she's found, uh, God has found grace for her. He looks down on her and he tells his angel Gabriel, he says, go explain to her that she will carry the Messiah. And Gabriel comes down to Mary and he says, hey, you're going to have a baby and this baby is going to be awesome. He's going to be God. He's going to be the Messiah. People will worship him. It's going to be so amazing for you. And Mary's sitting there like, yeah, yeah, you say so. Okay. All right. One question. I'm not married and I'm a virgin. How am I going to have this child? Because biology class said that's not how it works. And this is what Gabriel said to her. He explained to her how this is going to happen. This is verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. About as clear as mud, right? How am I going to get pregnant? Well, you're going to be overshadowed by God. And then you're going to end up pregnant. Now, to understand what's being said there in Luke, we need to understand what that word means. If you translated that word overshadowed, it literally means to be covered with a cloud. To be covered with a cloud. And so what we have here, what Gabriel explains to Mary is, hey, you're going to be covered with a cloud. And then from that interaction with that cloud, however that works, you're going to end up pregnant with the Son of God. Still real clear, correct? In order to understand what we're talking about, you have to look for other instances of some kind of, some kind of mystical spiritual cloud within the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we found this cloud that, that pops up again and again. And what it represents is always represents a manifestation of God's presence with his people. The first time we see it is in Exodus, the book of Exodus. The Israelites are leaving Egypt. They come across the Red Sea. They don't know where they're going. And it says they are led day and night by a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire in the nighttime. That is the first 
first manifestation of God's presence with his people. The other time we see this is when we get to the temple. There is a cloud that dwells uh, completely over the temple at all time. A visible manifestation of God's presence with his people. Now think about what they just said. A cloud will overshadow you. A cloud will cover you. And so what Gabriel explained to Mary, and what I think she probably would have understand, is that um, she is going to have an experience with the presence of God. The presence of God will come to you in some way, and we can't explain it any deeper than that. And from that interaction with the presence of God, you will be left with God in the flesh within your womb. Guys, you can't make this up. Some things are so hard to believe that you know that people didn't make them up. Some things are so unbelievable they have to be true because nobody could have made this lie up. This is, this is how we define how Jesus became flesh. And so now what we have to ask is why? Because there seems to be a lot of, uh, a lot of big spiritual things going on here. You've got the Logos. He's the power that holds the world together. Mary is being overshadowed by the presence of God. She then has the presence of God within her in the form of Jesus Christ. What, what, what does that mean? You might ask better is, is what is the purpose? As John continues, he says, The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Our purpose for why He became is so that He could dwell among us. That's the next point on your lips. Now, dwell just means to make a living place. It just means to find a place for you to live, somewhere that you dwell. This word in Hebrew, literally, I'm sorry, in Greek, literally translate to pitch his tent among us. To pitch his tent among us. Now there's some imagery there that may represent the old tabernacle. It was like the first form of the temple. It was an actual tent in which God's presence was in. But it might mean a lot of things. But what it really matters to us today is that we see the heart of God. He becomes flesh, and he pitches a tent among us. Uh, imagine this. You guys are all growing and, and different professionally, and Danny comes to us on a Sunday morning, and he says, I love Ramsey Heights. I love this place. However, I've received a job offer. I can't refuse. I'm coming out of retirement. I'm going back to work, right? Well, Danny, we're so excited for you with this new job offer. I'm glad that you are. He says, the only problem is it's in Texas. I have to leave. I have to move. No, Danny, you can't go, by the way. You can't go. You've got to stay here with us. You can't go. We don't want you to go. You've got to stay here. No, no, I'm going. And Danny and Denise find a house, and they move down there, and they spend their first night in it, and Danny is so relieved. It's like a new world, a new start for him. And he gets his, his cup of coffee, and he walks out on the front porch of his new awesome big house, and, and he walks out there, and there's a tent in the front yard. And so he investigates. The zipper unravels, and I pop out like, I couldn't wait with you. I had, you couldn't leave me. I had to be with you, Danny. Like, I had to be where you are. So I bought this tent, and I left my house. I left my family to be where you are down here in Texas. What does that tell you about me? Besides, I'm a stalker. That's, that's a different point. That tells you where my heart is, that my heart wants to be close to Danny. What does it tell us about God when he pitches his tent among us? tells us that he wants to be close to us. And I love the imagery there of a tent. It is, it is such a clear translation of what actually happened. Think about moving somewhere for a tent. If I had followed Danny to wherever he's going, or not allowed to go actually, if I had followed him, I'm going to leave my house that has running water, a very soft and comfortable bed, that has electricity, that has every TV channel known to man. I'm going to leave that, and I'm going to go find this little flimsy piece of fabric, and I'm going to set it up outside, and I'm going to sleep on the ground. And the wind will never be blocked from hitting me. It'll blow right through there. And maybe, maybe on a good day, it'll shed most of the water. If you've ever been camping, you know tents shed most of the water off of you. 
It sheds most of the water. And so I'm going to leave really, really great accommodations to go live in a tent. And you think about what it's talking about with Jesus when he pitched his tent among us. He went from being a power that lived in glory, and he became flesh. He became like you and me. Uh, think about this. Our human bodies, we're kind of stuck with them, but they're really not that great if we're being honest. Jesus went from being that power within the universe, and he came to a world where he can fall and scrape his knee. He came to a world where he caught colds and got the stomach bug. He manifested himself in a flesh that was easily hurt, could easily be broken. Jesus had sore muscles after working for a long day. His feet hurt when he, uh, when he walked a long way. Jesus woke up in the morning and had bad hair days. Like Jesus takes himself from this awesome form of the Logos and he becomes flesh. He downgrades himself so significantly. And what was the purpose of that? So that he could be close to us. So that he could dwell among us. Where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. And so what this does is it tells us about Jesus' heart, that he wants to be among us. And what that tells me is, if Jesus wants to be among us, I must be pretty awesome. Like, if God himself is like, hey, I want to hang out with Brian, I must be pretty awesome. No, that's not the point. I'm really a horrible person. Ask my wife. She has to live with me all the time. I have bad habits. I do bad things. I lose my temper, just like you do. No, it doesn't say that we are awesome. No, no, what it says about our God, it says that he must be pretty awesome if he wants to come. This leads us to action number two. Action number two is the same as the purpose for purpose number one. Action number two is this, is he dwelt among us. This is what he chooses to do. There's a song, and I thought to myself, it'd be so awesome if we sung this this morning, but, but nobody was on the same page, and that's okay. We let the Spirit lead that. You guys remember the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? What a friend we have in Jesus. I love that song. That's a biblical concept, by the way. Friendship with God is not something we sing because it sounds fun. Oh, we can have a friend in Jesus. It's kind of around and stuff. The Bible defines Jesus as a friend to sinners. It's biblically correct. And what do friends do? They connect with each other. Think about it. Think about your closest friend. You talk to them, don't you? Maybe your closest friend is somebody at school or somebody that you work with. Maybe your closest friend is your spouse or your parents. It doesn't matter, a sibling. But you connect with that friend. You, you want to be with them. And they're the people, your close friends, your real friends, are the ones who are going to walk beside you through hurt. When something happens in your life and you need something, they're the ones that are going to be there. They're the ones that are going to talk it out with you when you've got decisions to make. And the amazing thing about God is that He wants a relationship with us with that kind of closeness. A friendship with you and me. A friendship of constant connection. And it's always been that way. In the Garden of Eden, when God created us, He walked with Adam and Eve. He would stroll with them and talk with them. He would just kind of show up and hang out. And he would have personal connection and closeness with them. Even after the fall of sin, God's chosen people, he told them how to create a tabernacle, how to create a temple where his presence could be among his people even if he couldn't look upon their sin. And with the manifestation of Jesus, I'm sorry, let me take that back. With the conversion of Jesus, when he becomes flesh, when he was made into flesh, Jesus Christ says, I want to be with you. I desire to be with you. And look at the problems Jesus walked through and what he walked into to be with you and me. Jesus entered the world during the Roman occupation of Israel. Could have picked any time in history. He waited for Rome to occupy. 
That would be like today if China took over America and they basically made us their slaves and we had to do everything that this foreign country wanted us to do. That's what the Israelites were walking through when Jesus came. Jesus walked into a world so that he could be the, with them during the Roman occupation. Jesus walked into poverty. He didn't come as a king. He came as the son of a carpenter. Jesus walked into a world that was angry at him. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus' own town people, you know that old saying, it takes a village to raise a kid? In Jesus' case, it takes a village to try to kill a kid. They tried to kill him for, claim, for claiming to be the son of God. Jesus walked into a world where he was in constant conflict with the rich, religious elite and the powerful in the world, and there was anger in him. And Jesus walked into death. You know why? To be close to me and you. We'll talk about Jesus being a friend, that he would walk beside us in all of those troubles. Our truth following that action is God's heart is to be in closeness with you. That's all he wants. When we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about some, some strange figure. We're talking about a being who has existed, who still exists and will always exist, who wants nothing more than to be close to us. Do you really think that a God who has spent all of eternity figuring out a way how to pursue us and how to be close to you, do you really think what he wants from you is, I hope you go to church every once in a while? Do you think what this God wants from you is that you follow some ritual here at Christmas at Easter? A God who wants us to pretend to be a good person when people are watching? No, no, that's not what God wants. He wants closeness with us. He wants a friendship with us. He wants us to consult him when we have financial decisions. He wants us to lay our problems out to him when we're hurting. He wants us to take time throughout the day to spend time with him and say, hey, I just need to talk to you for a while. I need to check in with you. I miss our closeness. I miss our bond. That is the God that we serve. That's what God truly desires from us. Even heaven. Think about it. We kind of market heaven as like Disney for the dead. Like you're going to go to heaven and you're going to get to fish and you're going to get to hunt. You're going to get to do all the things you want to. You're going to have a mansion. There's going to be streets of gold. That's what we talk about with heaven. You know what heaven is really about? It's about us being once again in the presence of God. It's not about any of the other things that, that we talk about and are excited about. And so we have to ask ourselves, what was his purpose of wanting to dwell among us? Because I don't know if you've been around people, but we're not easy to get along with. I mean, I love you all dearly, but I'm not living with any of you, except for you back there in the back. I'll live with you. That's my wife, by the way. That's my wife back there. Like, we're not easy to get along with each other. We, we have conflict amongst ourselves. Humans have spent billions of dollars this year figuring out how to kill each other. And Jesus said, I want to be with you. What could have possibly been his purpose? Let's keep reading our verses here. Um, verse 14, we're going to start again at the beginning and read through 15. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me preferred before me, for he was before me. So, so as we look at this reasoning, as John is defining what is the purpose of Jesus coming, he gives us two eyewitness accounts. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember this. If you weren't, I'll explain it again real quick. In the first chapter of John, there are actually two Johns that we're dealing with. John number one is John the Apostle. He is the one who is writing that. He never uses his name. He never says who he is. He always calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. John number two, we know as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, who was a forerunner and a prophet that went before Jesus to say, hey, the Messiah is coming and that's him. 
And, and so John the Apostle writes this, and he writes to these two eyewitnesses. Number one, he says, John the Baptizer said that there is someone who is coming that is greater than me. And then John the Baptizer identified Jesus. This prophet with a message sent from God said, hey, you guys think a prophet's cool? Wait till you see the Messiah. Oh, by the way, that's him. Secondly, John the author, John the apostle here, he uh, gives his own eyewitness testimony. He says, we beheld his glory. What a weird wording. We beheld his glory. It would have been sufficient to say, yeah, he existed. I saw him. That's like how I would say it. Like if Tom Cruise is in Batesville, I'm going to come to church and be like, hey guys, I saw Tom Cruise. I'm not going to be like, guys, Tom Cruise was at Freddy's and I beheld his glory. Right? We just would say, we saw. So what John's trying to get at is there's something, something more than just I noticed this person with my eyewitness or I saw them. He said, we beheld his glory. And the meaning of that is not real clear. I've got a theory I'm going to share with you. It could mean that he saw the miracles. I mean, Jesus was pretty special. He, he, he walked in the city and he saw somebody with a sickness and boom, it was fixed like that. Maybe that's what he was talking about. John was present at the transfiguration. Transfiguration is where Jesus goes off and some of his disciples see him and he is transformed into his heavenly glory and he's standing there talking to Elijah and Moses. John could have been talking about that. But yet John does not talk about either of those after saying we beheld his glory. He doesn't mention either of those. I wonder, could it mean that John saw not what Jesus did, but who Jesus was? Our next truth on our outline here, I'm sorry, our purpose is so we could behold his glory. His action was he dwelt among us so we could behold his glory. So now we have to define what is this glory. We can talk about it being Jesus shining during the transfiguration. We talk about the awe-inspiring miracles. But if you look at what John goes on and talks about after this, John does not talk about any of those things. He identifies two things that make Jesus who he is. Number one, he identifies his origin. He is the uh, only begotten of God. And secondly, he talks about what's inside of him. And what do we call what's inside of us? What do we call what's inside of God? We call it our, our heart. Is it possible that what John is saying is the glory that he beheld of Jesus was not the miracles, not the transfiguration, possibly not even the resurrection, but what was within Jesus that made him different than everybody else? The elements that, of the heart that he identifies in Jesus are grace and truth. The glory of Jesus is not what he did. It's what's within him. He said he is full of grace and truth. Uh, grace just simply means a generous love, this, this willingness to give undesire, undeserved service to others. And, and truth is a knowledge of what is right and true. Specifically in this case, it's the truth of God's law. And what God's law says is that all people have sin within them. And Jesus, or I'm sorry, John says Jesus had both of these things within him. Now there seems to be a conflict there between these, like, like Jesus had multiple personalities. I don't want to say that disrespectfully, but it's almost like those two things shouldn't exist in the same person. Because the truth that John speaks of right here, the truth that he saw in Jesus, lost my place, there it is. The truth that he talks about in Jesus is that Jesus saw that our sin demands punishment. This, this thing that we choose over God, it demands punishment of us. That is the truth of the scripture. The truth of the scripture says that you and I rejected God, and for that reason, we deserve to spend the rest of eternity to, uh, away from him, disconnected from him, with no chance of coming up to him, living a tortured existence in what we would call hell. Because we chose to live in this world disconnected from God in a tortured existence we called life. Some of you are thinking that we don't live in a tortured existence here. 
Well, if you watched the Razorback game yesterday, we didn't. No, I'm kidding. Seriously, think about it. Think about our tortured existence here. Think about the world we live in, a world of hatred, a world where people can't get along, a world where we kill each other. We live in a world with cancer and dementia. We live a tortured existence here. All of those are effects of the fact that we rejected God. We choose to do it His way. We all have that sin within us. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. What would you say if somebody was talking bad about you? Like it got at, we'll say in the church. We don't do that here, but let's just say somebody in the church is talking bad about you. Oh, so-and-so does this. Right? You know the, the, how the little gossip mill gets? And what's our first reaction? Our first reaction is always to kind of defend ourselves. Well, they don't even know who I am. They, they don't do what I do. They're, they're, not, they're worse than I am. We always kind of defend ourselves. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said, if somebody speaks ill of you, don't worry about it. You are far worse than they could ever have imagined. I love you all, but that is true of everybody in here. We are all far worse than ourselves or somebody else could imagine of us. And truth says, truth that is in Jesus Christ says, there's a punishment that is demanded for that. And then on the other hand, you have grace within Jesus that says, I don't care what they've done. I will protect them from that punishment. I will take that punishment upon myself. It's a part of Christ's character. It seems like those two things would fight each other, doesn't it? And when John describes the glory of Christ, he describes within Christ truth and grace working together. That is impossible. That is just as impossible as a virgin birth. That somebody could both be judgmental, having perfect truth within them, and have perfect grace within them as well. I'll retract that statement. That's impossible for you and me. That's not impossible for God. See, you and I are hardwired to take care of ourselves. We never sacrifice for others unless what? Unless it feels good for me. That is the human nature of us. If somebody attacks us, we will attack them back. If somebody offends them, we will offend them back. When there's a need for justice in others, when it's against us, we see a need for Jesus, justice. But when there's a need for justice for us, we never see that. We never see real truth. Some of you are parents and grandparents. When is the last time your child or grandchild did something wrong and you sit down and talk to them about it and they go, you know what, you're right, what I need is a good whooping? Yeah, that's never happened, has it? You never heard a kid say, you know, Mom, if I were you, I, I would give uh, mm, five minutes in time out because I was bad. And what do kids always do? Kids are always like, well, I only hit him because he took my toy. It's part of our nature. And it's not kids, it's adults. I've counseled people through marriages, and it's always like, well, she did this, and he said that, and that's why I did this, and I responded this way. It's never about, hey, I made a mistake. I'm a teacher. Some of you teachers are preachers like this. I've seen this with kids. Not with kids, with kids' parents, right? Like so-and-so misbehaves in the classroom and you give them detention or something. I've had calls 316. School lets out 315. 316, they're calling the office. Why has my kid got detention? Uh, well, ma'am, um, they were talking in class and disrupting class. Well, I don't think that's fair. You talk in class all the time. I'm like, I'm the teacher. They pay me to talk in class. That's an exaggeration, but not a very big one, to be honest with you. Like there's something within us that says there is no need for justice for us or those that we love. But Jesus could see that need for justice within us. See, Jesus, who he was, not just what he did, who he was, was he saw a need for punishment and he loved unconditionally anyway. Let's keep reading verses 16 through 18 here. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. I'm going to read that again. That's an important verse. And of his fullness, it's talking about that fullness of grace and truth. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. 
No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. I love that verse 16. It starts talking about this grace on grace. And what it talks about is this Jesus is so full of this, this grace and truth that it kind of flows out of him. I've got this picture of Jesus of a fountain of grace and truth. And as he flows out, we receive it. And if we have the ability to show grace to people, it's because in some way that grace has flowed into us and then it begins to flow out of us. Because left to ourselves, we will never show grace to others. So action number three is Jesus, is he poured grace out. Another word weirding here, or weird wording here. John says grace on grace. What does that mean? Poured out, flowing over. We have received grace on grace. Why couldn't he just say we've received grace? It's kind of like, I've got a video coming up here. RB, if you can click over to that next one that says video. It's got a blue tag on it. It's kind of like this. Isn't that mesmerizing? Like, like to just go to the beach and sit there and just relax and just watch that water. I looked for a video with sound. I couldn't find one, but I just wanted to sit here for a second and just listen to it. Here's the thing about the ocean is that every time you think the ocean is receding, here comes another wave. And you think it's going away, and here comes another wave. And we call that it's coming in wave on wave. And so when John is talking about grace on grace, this is the picture I want you to look at, of his grace flowing over us. Put this in your mind. That this is how it works, is that we sin and a wave of grace comes over us. And as soon as we think that grace is almost gone, here comes another wave. And we sin again, and here comes another wave. And we sin again, and here comes another wave. And even if it's the 80 millionth time we've given to that sin, here comes just another wave. And somewhere within us, somewhere within us, I will say this for me, so I think it's true of more than just me. Somewhere within us, there is a fear that we are going to overextend the grace of God. That it's going to run out. Somewhere within us goes, if I don't clean my act up, God is going to get me good. That he will no longer put up with my nonsense if I go over the 81, 80 millionth and one time of that sin. And we carry this secret fear, but the very nature of grace, listen to this, the very nature of grace is you cannot change his grace by your actions. If you could change his grace by your actions, if we, if we could do something that would make him no longer pour grace upon us, it's not grace. Because grace is not connected to our actions. Grace is connected to his being. Our truth for this action is the glory of Jesus Christ is his knowledge of our failures and his love for us in spite of them. And when John identifies the inner essence, the heart of Jesus Christ, this is what he identifies. He sees every imperfection that you have. Every time you worried too much. Every little time you had a prideful moment. Every time you lost your temper, even if nobody else knew it. Jesus sees that. He sees all the parts of you that you hide from everybody else. And he loves you. He loves you in spite of it. Now let me ask you a question. I want you to really answer this question in your mind. And here's my assignment for this question. I want you to forget what the good doctrinal answer is. Okay, I don't say forget the doctrine. I say forget the good doctrinal answer. Forget the answer you would yell out in the middle of Sunday school. I want you to answer this. Is in your heart, when no one is looking, and you look in the mirror, and you see yourself as a failure, is this who you really believe Jesus is? Do you really, truly believe that he is a God who became flesh because he wanted to be close to you? Do we really believe that he wants closeness to us even with our flaws, in spite of our flaws? Do we really believe that he is full of truth, yet also full of grace? 
Do we believe that he keeps pouring grace over us for every failure we have, big and small? Do we believe in a Jesus Christ who died for you just the way you are? Sometimes I don't. I'm not arguing with the Bible here. I'm not telling you the Bible's wrong. I'm telling you when I look in the mirror and I have failures and deep down in my heart, I ask myself, how could God love me? Every time I fail to be perfect and I look at myself and I have no value, I say, I don't believe what God says about my value. And I'm not telling you that because I want you to feel the same way. I'm telling you that because I'm not the only person in this room that does that. I'm not the only person who knows all of the correct answers about Jesus, but sometimes has a hard time convincing my heart of that. But what we're called to do when we come here and we celebrate this person of Jesus, what we're called to do is remind each other, yeah, God's got grace for that sin. God loves you. Sometimes we, we have to remind each other, hey, God is full of truth and he, he knows about that sin that you're not confessing. And we have to pour that onto other people too because that's where we fail. We believe this about Jesus, but it only applies to me. It doesn't apply to the person who cut me off in traffic. It doesn't apply to the people who, uh, who talk bad about me in my workplace. We're always like, God's got grace for me, but I'm not sure about his grace for them because they're bad people. Now, the truth is, is this is the grace of God and it pours over us. It washes over us like waves. Here's the purpose of why he came here and became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us his glory. Purpose, the last one, is so we could receive his grace. Not because we earned his grace, not because we're worthy of his grace because we're, we are our own favorite people. We get his grace because of who he is. And when we come to church, when we come here together, this is why we're here. We're not here to engage in some religious something or other because we were here. Well, we are here to worship him and thank him for that and be excited about that. And if you can't be under, excited about that, if there's not something in you that goes, oh my God, it's so awesome, you've got a misunderstanding of one of two things. I'm almost done, guys. I know, we're almost out of here. Number one is you may have a misunderstanding of the truth that you are a sinner. You're all about God's love for you, but you look in the mirror and you think, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that other person. Or I'm better than I used to be. And if you can't get excited about Jesus Christ, it's because you're looking at your heart and you're not seeing the truth of who you really are. Or quite the opposite, you can't get excited of it because you understand the truth of how dirty you are, but you can't understand the grace that no matter what you've done or what you've, what you've not accomplished or how imperfect you were, that that flows over you with everything. That he still looks down on you and says, you're still mine. Oh yeah, that was a bad one. I still love you. Another wave of grace. Danny and Glennie, if you want to make your way up here. And so this morning, as I challenge you every single week, don't leave here the same. Leave here different than you always have. This is our response time. And maybe God is telling you that, hey, I came and I died to be close for, to you. And all you really do is go to church. And you know in your heart, he's calling you. He's like, I need, I need you to give me some more closeness. This is your time. You don't have to wait. You can do it where you're sitting. You can do it up here at the altar. This is your time to come to God. And just have that moment of closeness with him. And talk with him. And say, God, I, I love you. And I'm so thankful for your friendship. Maybe you're sitting here and you've never understood that truth about yourself, that you are a dirty, miserable sinner. I still love you. God still loves you. Maybe you've never actually understood that and you need to go to him and say, God, I accept your grace. Or maybe you're like me where you accept his grace only when it feels like you should. And maybe you just need to renew your worship for the fact that God, no matter how much I fail, your grace is over me. Whatever it is, this is open to you. Don't leave here the same. Come pray. Let me pray with you.